0: Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. All right, well, welcome. Thanks for joining us on the American Potential podcast. Appreciate you uh, joining us on this journey. This has been, it's been fun doing this podcast, and i What's so amazing about this is just the technology that we employ sometimes to do this. We, we use a, a, some software and stuff. I I'm in a radio studio. I mean, this is, this is how the magic works. I'm in a radio studio in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is my home. And I come in, I record in the studio, but we have folks doing that all across the country. Monica Who is our content coordinator, lives you live in Richmond, right, Monica? Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia. And then we have John Quick, who does all of our social media promotion and and all of that effort for us, the all of the marketing for the podcast. And he lives in Nikiski, Alaska, which you've never heard of. Anybody, the only person here right now listening to this who knows where Nikiski is is John Quick. Hi, John. You only come to Nikiski if you live or work here. And I currently still have about three feet of snow at my house and it is snowing right now. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Uh, so anyway, I mean, isn't that fascinating? I wonder how many miles it is between in a straight line between Nikiski, Alaska and Richmond, Virginia. It's a lot, but you know, for all of this to work. And then we have guests who call in from all over the country. So it's kind of a, a cool deal. Um, and, and we're doing great on another podcast episode. I'm going to ask John to give us some statistics about how we're doing, how we've launched the podcast. So that that's just some of the the background I wanted folks to understand and know about this podcast. And then we have Matt, who's who's our board operator. Matt's in studio here with me. Hi, Matt. Yeah, you. I'm the only one. See, you have the misfortune of being in studio with me. I'm here in person. Matt has yeah. to deal with yeah. me. <laughs> Matt has to deal with me all the time. Matt, it was my board operator. I did a radio show for thirteen years or something. How long did you you do the board for me? There, I, I want to say it was about five years. Yeah, it was close to five years. Close. Yeah, so it wasn't the whole thirteen. Yeah, but five years, and you can tell Matt has that radio voice. So, you know, so they hey, tell what me. What can I say? That's right. <laughs> I just push buttons on the control board, and things happen. Sometimes in the right order. Most importantly, most of the time, he knows how to push all those massive amounts of buttons over there on the board. Uh, So Matt uh, is with us as well. And so anyway, it's a great, it's a great uh, opportunity that we have to bring this to you. And so I just, uh, I wanted to, to, uh, to do that. Okay. Well, look, so we've talked a lot about education savings accounts and when it comes to states that are passing these education savings accounts, it's now Texas's turn. Texas has an educational savings account bill that's making its way through the state legislature. And at the time that we're recording this podcast, this bill would give parents up to $8,000 to have their child attend the school of their choice. And today's podcast guest has been working on trying to get this bill passed by talking with different groups, talking with legislators, as well as working with the Speaker of the House's office and the Governor's office. Stacey Hawk is the founder and executive director of Texans for Education Opportunity. She also serves on the board of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Stacy, thanks for coming on and for talking about why ESAs are important to students. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah. So, um, first of all, I, I learned you are I, I learned a little bit about your background. First of all, you're a sixth-generation Texan. Is that right? That's right. That's pretty impressive. Um, how about, and, and you graduated from MIT. I never would have dreamed I'd have a guest as smart as you, someone from MIT, a graduate of MIT on my podcast. I'm honored.
1: Well, I'm honored <laughs> to be here, truly.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Um, and I also found out your husband's name is Joel. My son's name is Joel. And you know what I was thinking the other day? There aren't many people named Joel. Do you run into a lot of Joel's?
1: I don't run into a lot. In fact, Joel likes that his name is on the more unique side,
0: yeah, yeah, my son, I named we named our son Joel, liked the name, and i I worked for a member of Congress whose name was Joel, and i and I, I liked him, and so we named our son Joel. And then I think I've only met like seven other Joel's in my whole life. Uh, and occasionally he gets called Joe. so I'm sure that happens to your husband once in a while as well. So anyway, um, welcome to the show. I appreciate you you being with us, but more importantly, I appreciate you being engaged on this issue. First of all, what what makes you care about this issue? Why do you care so much about educational options and educational freedom?
1: Well, like so much many of us, you know, obviously we want the best for children. And for me, I benefited from a, essentially a choice program. I got to go to a magnet school here in Austin, Texas. And it was really excellent education. And I was able to have peers who were interested in math and science in the same way I was and have teachers who could accelerate us through at our own pace. And as a result, I went to MIT extremely prepared, uh, more so than most of my incoming peers that freshman year. And I was so grateful for that. And then you fast forward a couple of decades and you know we've had Joel and I had success in our career, and we were looking at ways to give back and I had volunteered in different capacities and public school settings, and I was excited about what was happening in charters and excited to support that philanthropically um, but the idea of you know even broadening that market to the private sector, allowing people to innovate and try things, allowing educators to put their offerings out to a market unencumbered by um What we think of as a pretty traditional or stagnant, in some ways, um, public education sector. That was exciting to me. And, And most fundamentally, just allowing families, parents, and students to make choices for themselves, for models that they felt would best serve their needs and their interests and bring them alive. I find, in my opinion, that too often the opposite is happening, that kids are losing their love of learning. And sort of that huge potential each of these kids has is being squashed by those things, not being lit on fire, but rather being squandered.
0: Yeah. Now, first of all, I want to be honest with you. I think even if I had gone to a magnet school, I still wouldn't have gotten into MIT. (laughs) I'm just going to be honest. but. I mean, how did that shape you? I mean, your ability to be able to go to a magnet school and get that kind of an education, that that's really driving, that sets you up for success at MIT. But that also drives you in in this pursuit for educational opportunities for others, right?
1: Of course. And you know, one thing we can all relate to is having that educator in our life that made such a difference for us, that saw mm-hmm. something in us that maybe we didn't even see in ourselves. And we want that for all kids. But there's there's other pieces to it as well. There are parts about it that allow children and families to take some agency and some have some autonomy in their education path. Each kid is unique. We all have different Uh, talents, natural gifts, things that we're inclined towards. And so creating an environment where kids can move at their own pace, where they can run in the areas they want to run. And I believe there's a lot of opportunity to have environments that live and feel uh, more flexible, like so many of us are benefiting from in the 21st century. I want to bring that into K-12. I just think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. And it starts with, like I said, allowing people more options to make choices for themselves and allowing educators more opportunity to try new things.
0: I want to make sure that in case there's people, I mean, we really do talk, we've done a lot of episodes on education savings accounts, but I do want people to understand what those are. So take just a minute and describe what an ESA or an education savings account is.
1: Well, many people are familiar with healthcare spending accounts or perhaps the SNAP program for food stamps. In these cases, funding is put into a limited use account that can be directed by the user, the beneficiary for the purposes of that. It may be healthcare expenses. It may be food expenses. Or in this case, it's education expenses. The great thing about education savings accounts is that Unlike a previous iteration, which was a voucher, where money would go straight from the state to a designated school, this goes to an account where the family can send that all to a private school, or they could work with online schooling, co-ops, hybrids. They could cover expenses associated with homeschooling, like curriculum, certified tutors, if there are special needs therapies. And there's real purchasing power. If they don't spend all of the dollars on tuition, then they can roll over to the next year. Um, and therefore, we find that people get the most use or benefit out of each of those dollars spent.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's a great way to describe it is comparing it kind of to a health savings account, right? I mean, it, it's a little different uh, in that it's... it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's very similar in that the money has to be designated for for education, um, and that's a great comparison. How so? There's lots of states that are doing this. West Virginia has passed e, uh, education savings accounts. Utah, um, let's see, I'm trying to think. There's there's tons that are out there. That, that's right. That, that have done we've it. We've had
1: a, we've had a, you know, the majority of states. Thirty-one states have private school choice programs, and education savings accounts are where all of the modern day legislation is going, because mm. we've found those are the easiest to audit on the back end, uh, administer for the state while providing the greatest flexibility for the families. Um, we have recently had a number of states pass universal education savings accounts. So they started off being more limitedly available for students with special needs right. or kids who are coming from low income families. But it's exciting that we've now had Arizona, West Virginia, Iowa, Utah, Arkansas, and most recently Florida pass ESA programs for all children in their state. And we hope Texas will be the next on that list.
0: Yeah, such a such a great revolution. We talked about this a little bit in the pre-interview, but but a lot of this opportunity, I think, is driven COVID exposed for a lot of parents, right? That that an education, our current K through 12 education system is a one size fits all system. It does, it's not tailored to kids and that we have to change that system so that it's tailored towards kids and towards innovation. And um, so this has been, I think uh, uh, there, there's not much that came out positive that came out of COVID, but I do think that this is, is something that has been a positive force is this change that we're seeing this. I, I'm, and I would almost say a revolution. I think back to 20 years ago, To think that there would be all these states passing education savings accounts, we wouldn't have even thought that possible, really. Your thoughts on that?
1: That's right. It is remarkable. And I think the harsh truth is that K-12 public education writ large in the United States has been underperforming for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And COVID did... Unveil that for a lot of families. You know, <laughs> I um, we've talked a lot about, you know, the the teachers unions overplaying their hand and keeping schools closed or their demands to try to open schools back up um, or some of the other restrictions that were put on students or the ways that we sort of waived or passed through on the academics, you know, during the covid years. Um, but I will say we have not been having the outcomes that we should expect from such an important institution in this country for a long time. so, yes, i'm I'm not surprised that when families got closer to the education that was happening for their children, they were underwhelmed and disappointed. Um, and also, you know, as organizations have started to co-opt education with some pretty aggressive, social agendas that haven't been aligned with the majority of mainstream families in America. Those two things are really at odds. And at some point, as much as we all want to support and have great nostalgia and appreciation for our neighborhood public schools, we understand that there are times when families need choices and there are times when those odds are too great. Um, that you really do need to be empowered to make different choices if you're not feeling that the school is aligned with the best needs for your kids.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I'm a product of the public school system. I went to public school. Both my kids went to public school system. I'm not sure today that I would still send them to the current public school system uh, that they went to. But, you know, this really is a question of do you love public schools more than kids or do you love the kids more than the public schools. I mean, I, I can defend a good public school all, all, all day long, but most importantly are the kids. And that's where this movement really, this is what's driving this, right? Is that the, that the child should be as the consumer of this, the parents as the consumer, they should be the decision maker here, not a school because it's in a certain zip code.
1: That's right. And what this does is it forces putting the focus back where it should be. Mm-hmm. Which is what is best serving the student, and how are we going to drive great academic and educational gains for that student so that they really meet meet their potential? Um, so this kind of a dynamic does help center that focus. And I think that, you know, this could be the biggest boon to public education in a generation. Because education savings accounts are indeed a public education offering. This is the public coming together and contributing our dollars for the benefit of our children's education. That is public education. That's the mission of public education. And this is all about adding one more offering to that landscape that we think will help drive productivity and good outcomes for everyone across the whole landscape. So we want great public schools in our neighborhoods. We want great charter schools and innovators, and we want a great private sector to engage in education services. And we're seeing that happen today with more strategic capital and thinking coming into that space than we have in a long time. And it's because of these programs that folks who have long wanted to make an impact in K-12 are starting to see and be drawn to this industry and find that that's a really good use of what they have to offer.
0: Yes. Stacy, I'm going to use the magnet school that you went to as an example. I mean, that was sounds like it was the perfect fit for you. It but, really was. It was great. Yeah. But you wouldn't argue that it's probably the perfect fit for every kid either. Would you?
1: It's certainly not. And I think it's right. okay for people to have an ability to self-select. I have friends who loved going to a language immersion program. And frankly, I've never loved languages the way some people do. Meanwhile, I love math and science, and not everyone loves math. I would argue everyone should have an appreciation for math, um, as I'm sure my friends would argue the same for languages. But it's okay if we have things that we're drawn to and helping us run in those areas is the best way to lift the whole country up where we can all pursue our talents and our passions.
0: Yeah, and that's I mean that's why I raised that issue. Sounds like it was a great school, great school for you, but it may not have been the best choice for every uh, you know all the kids in your neighborhood. So wouldn't it be crazy if we if we forced every one of those kids to go to that magnet school because they lived in a zip code or they lived in a neighborhood? And that's the system we have now and that's what's so wrong with it, right? That's right. So um tell me about Texas, specifically the the bill that you're working on in Texas. How would it benefit kids living in Texas today?
1: Well, Texas, you know, it's a a big footprint. We have one in 10 of the nation's school children. And the bill that we're looking at would give the kids in our public school system today one more option in their arsenal. So if for any reason families felt that their child was not thriving in the local public school offerings they would have this option to enroll in the education savings account program and take responsibility for their child's education privately most often that involves enrolling in a private school and going to a private school but they also have the option of homeschooling or as i said before working with you know various micro school models or co-op options and hybrid options or virtual options uh to piece together what would work well for their child and their family
0: i think mm -hmm, oh go ahead i'm sorry
1: well just in you know in texas we really have benefited from great public schools and great charter networks um but we have a lot of demand for those public schools and a lot of those charter networks beyond what we can fulfill. So this continues to alleviate pressure as well for those really high demand areas where the growth and the demand is exceeding the supply.
0: So do you, uh, as you look at this, one of the arguments, one of the big arguments that people make is that, well, if you do this, all the parents who care about their kids will take their kids out of the public schools. And the only ones left in the public schools will be the kids who nobody cares and the, it'll get worse for them. I, I totally disagree with that argument, by the way. But, but tell me your thoughts on how you would argue uh, the other side of that argument.
1: Well, I can't imagine a bigger insult to the public schools than to suggest if you give parents an option to leave, that everybody with their wherewithal would choose to do so. Right. I mean, that's outrageous. If that's right. actually the case, then we needed to do this a long long time time ago. ago. A long time Um, ago, yeah. No, I don't think that's that's true at all. And we haven't seen that happen anywhere. Like I said, the vast majority of states have private school choice. Uh, Seven states have universal ESAs that are in the process of being implemented. But millions and millions of kids have access to these programs. And we tend to see that initially, you know, uptake is somewhere around one to 2%. And then over time, we'll get up to, Five to 10 percent, depending on uh, how broadly available the program is. But we have never seen some sort of mass exodus or stampede, you know, to the door. That's just not realistic. Families continue to want to go to their neighborhood public school if it's a good option for their kids. It has every advantage, it is the default, it is the most convenient, it is where. The other kids in the community go, um, that is a lot of advantage for that school. Um, families only do something different if they think it is materially better for their kids
0: what what do, as you look at this, what what do you think is the future of education in the United states? i mean you you see what's happening with we've talked about state after state kind of passing these reforms. I mean, where do you see us in 10 or 20 years from now, education in America?
1: It's an exciting time. And I think it's going to look so different 10 to 20 years from now, because families are getting a lot more comfortable with doing something that's outside of the box. And the market is responding to that. So we're going to see more and more folks providing options that look and feel totally different than what you and I knew when we were growing up. And I have four boys in school right now, and they're all in public schools, um, but they've done private school in the past. And um, I know that they're all different. And I know if it were up to me, I would love to have a little bit more flexibility than we have right now as a family. And I feel sure that when my grandchildren come around and it's their turn to go to school, they're going to have more of that. They're going to have more flexibility. They're going to, the landscape's going to look so plural that we're going to understand that there's all these different models of schools that families get to choose from. And that's going to increase engagement. um, And it's going to increase kids having fits that work for them. And I hope what that results in is this low hanging fruit of all of our, you know, human capital potential being unleashed in a wholly different way. It's going to drive our economy. It's going to just rocket ship. Texas and the United States and where this is happening in all these states that are leading the way in this way on policy, that's going to bleed over to the rest of us, whether we get it supported publicly or not, because families will make choices that are the best for their kids to the the extent that they can. And more and more people will be able to take advantage of these opportunities as the cost and the price for them continue to drive down.
0: Yeah, you, you mentioned yourself having uh, uh, four boys. The, uh, I have children myself, and I can say my kids aren't the same. And I'm sure you your four boys are very different. All of them have their own personality, drives, desires, likes. They learn in different ways. And that's what this is about, right? For parents to be able to choose. And there's lots of families out there that I've talked to doing this doing this show who say, look, I send one of my kids to one school and I send another one to a different school because their kids are individually different. That's what this is about, isn't it?
1: That's what it's about. It really is. And so, you know, we're in America, we're used to that. We're okay with, you know, people being unique and different and um, having a variety of options that look that way. And this is kind of what the whole American dream has been built on. It's not been built on a completely regulated and controlled government monopoly. Um, Rather, let's empower people with options and then hold them to a standard. Let's make sure that academic attainment is happening, but not tell them every single step of the way to get there.
0: So I have used this, and you can tell me if you think I'm crazy in, in this analogy, but I've used the higher education analogy. Now we have a lot of problems in higher education in America, but one thing that we do it, one thing for sure, we do that very differently than we do K-12 through education. Higher education is a series of public schools, private schools, religious, non-religious, all, by the way, competing for tax dollars in the form of Pell Grants and government student loans. And a a, a kid graduates high school and they get to decide where they want to go. It can be the public school. It can be a public school in another state. It can be a private school. It can be religious, non-religious. We've done that. And, and it is where it's where the rest of the world likes to come to get higher education is in the United States because we've built a system that is respected kind of around the world for that. But yet in K through 12, we never did that. Isn't that, I mean, do you agree with that analogy? Yes. I think parts of that are exactly
1: right. Like you said, you know, higher ed has its own, uh, Prohibitive problems, right. but um, so there's always room for, in my opinion, kind of opening up the market a bit and mm-hmm. um, allowing different forces at play. But I think you're right. I think, you know, the extent to which K-12 has not, you know, operated that way and embraced the private sector um, and allowing those same kinds of the way we allow public support for students to go to the school of their choosing um you know, it, it's been underserved. And so it's, it's overdue. So in that regard, the way that we do support kids to make choices, um, and support them with public dollars to whatever higher ed institution they choose. Similarly, we should do that in K-12.
0: Now you and I were talking before we started the interview, you talked about that this system, once we move to a system and we, and we shift Uh, we shift the focus to students and to parents rather than to systems, that that's going to lay the groundwork for an innovative spirit in education. What do you mean by that?
1: I am so excited about how people are thinking about education. I'm seeing folks from all walks of life with all sorts of industry experience. I'm seeing capital investment come in that's extremely strategic who are looking to address this problem, move this industry um, with new ideas, new technology solutions, reimagine what schooling could look and feel like, um, how much time we're spending outdoors, How much? what the school year looks like, how much time you're doing together in a classroom setting versus, you know, more independently or age groups, you know, should we cohort everyone with their same age, or should we have some things that are more cohorted based on ability? Um, Allowing kids to move along at their own pace rather than on a set schedule. Mastery learning, waiting until kids demonstrate an understanding, a robust understanding of a concept before moving on to the next one. All of those kinds of things, you know, getting work products that are measured more by external sources rather than internal sources. So, so something that you could take to someone else and they could say, hey, this is reputable out in the, in the world. The market's going to see this as something meaningful. Um, those are the kinds of ideas and standards that should be infused into our curriculum so that as students are learning and progressing along their path, um, they're developing all of these schools, all, all of these skills and executive function to Continue to be lifelong learners, to chart their course. That's where the future will be. Um, And K-12 should be just the beginning of that.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's that's well put and fascinating, really, again, as we talk about the future of education in America and what it will look like. I think, you know, we talked about how looking back 20 years, we never thought we'd be here or we thought, man, there's going to be a lot of battles before we get here. I think looking forward 20 years, we, we won't believe how far we've come. Do you agree with that?
1: I think we are just on a tipping point and you're exactly right. I can't tell you what all it will look like, um, but I'm excited to see where we go.
0: Yeah. One last point that I wanted to point out. I mean, there's a lot of, we we, we hear parents very frustrated with what's being taught, maybe the values or the lack of values sometimes in school uh, right now. and That's one of the great things about educational uh, uh, opportunity and choice in in education is that it it allows parents to to really have something to say about that. Right now, you're trapped in a many parents are trapped. Their kids are trapped in a school that may not be teaching them the values that they find uh exceptional or the values that they want their children to have. This would really empower parents to be able to make those choices and make the right choice for them, right? As a family.
1: That's exactly right. I think for too long, we've sort of accepted, Hey, let's uh, separate our values, you know, whether they're religious or our moral grounding um, or other kind of traditional values like patriotism from our secular schooling. But what we're finding is that, You cannot separate those things from a real education. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to openly engage in those ideas. And unfortunately, predominantly, one voice has kind of taken hold. And families are finding that they would rather have an environment that does instill the kinds of ideas that they used to take for granted in American life, whether it is, you know, pride in our country. Or openness and tolerance of each other, uh, civil discourse, um, being able to be open about your faith, if you're religious, um, all of those things have felt diminished or shut down in a way that isn't healthy that mm-hmm. families realize don't doesn't feel comfortable um, and it's gotten gotten to a point where In many cases, families feel that the the schooling system is actually working counter to their ideas in this area. And as a result, you know, that's just um, that's just too much to ask for families, you know. So we need to get back to openness and respecting uh, where where people are coming from and not shying away from, you know, the areas where they are. Proud to acknowledge their faith and their moral character that they're looking to instill in their children, um, as well as pride in our country.
0: Yeah, well, it's, and it's not just it's not just faith and moral character and patriotism. I mean, those are certainly values that I think uh, most most parents in America hold dear and want want instilled in their children. But it's even things like capitalism and and defending the values of capitalism versus socialism. I mean. It, those are the things that parents right now, if that's happening in their school where the teacher's talking about socialism and not giving them the other side of the greatness of capitalism, th- there's nothing they can do about it. They're just stuck.
1: Yeah, that's certainly a big one for me personally. Yeah. And you're right. You know, at some point you feel like, well, I'll just cover those, those ideals at home. But before long, the list of things you feel like you need to cover at home <laughs> um, becomes very long. Right. And you might as well just school at home eventually, yeah. Yeah, that's right
0: that's right, well, listen, uh Stacy, I really do appreciate you joining us today and talking about the issue, but more importantly, just your dedication to education across america and and the great work that you're doing there, but also trying to get this law passed in Texas. Just give us an update on that uh, what What's the prospects of this passing in Texas and how close are we
1: well I'll tell you the prospects are very good because we have the right leader on this issue governor Abbott is the one pushing primarily for this parental empowerment and mm-hmm. school choice here in Texas and that has made it an entirely new day the Senate as you mentioned has passed the bill it's a great bill Made it through committee through the floor and it's come out of the chamber. The Texas House is actually taking up their ESA bills tomorrow on Tuesday, April 11th. And so we'll see how that goes in committee. And we anticipate, you know, it taking a little while for the committee to come together on their final bill and a potential vote to move it out of committee. I expect it'll be May before there's negotiations to bring that bill potentially to the House floor. Uh, But the governor has done a remarkable job traveling the state, making the case. He knows that the majority of Texans on both sides of the aisle are for this legislation. Uh, We are making sure that the members know that as well. We're grateful to the Senate and their leadership. And, you know, we remain hopeful and optimistic that the members of the Texas House will also see fit to add this offering to our public education repertoire so that families have more options and our students aren't left behind what's happening in other states across the nation.
0: Well, and it's great to hear Governor Greg Abbott doing such a great job. He's a great policy champion, uh, particularly on this issue. You know, I see so many governors. I, I saw one the other day. I won't name who it was, but they've had every opportunity to be a champion on education, and they failed to do that, quite honestly. And uh, they're, they're a conservative governor, uh, but they failed on, on grasping that. But, you know, I look at the leadership that we've had from, you know, Governor Doug Ducey in Arizona and Governor Kim Reynolds in Iowa, Governor DeSantis in Florida, Governor Abbott now in Texas, and so many others, right, that have just, uh, th- 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 I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't want this to be your legacy, right, if you're the governor. Like, you, you revolutionized the system and you made it about the kids. What what an amazing uh, what an amazing accomplishment and legacy for someone in the governor's office, right? That's
1: exactly right, and I'm so grateful to Governor Abbott to be taking this on the way he is. But I'll tell you, I have talked to a lot of the governors who have gotten it passed, and they will tell you it is no easy task. You mm-hmm. have to be willing to walk through fire. There is so much institutional money and power against this that wants to protect the status quo and it is overwhelming in the state houses and in the political arena and the governors who take on all those arrows to get this done are heroes they're absolute heroes and it is hard for the everyday mom and dad to be able to communicate that to them in the same way that institutional political forces can um, on the opposition, but I'm so grateful that Governor Abbott's willing to take this on and fight for it with courage.
0: Yeah, no question about it. Stacy, thank you for joining us. Uh, Stacy Hawk, the founder, executive director of Texans for Education Opportunity, also serves on the board of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. If folks want to find out more uh, or get in touch with you or find out more about these organizations, how can they do that?
1: Well, absolutely. They can go on the TPPF website and reach out to me. And if you want to put them in your show notes, I'd be happy to share
0: contact information there as well. Okay, we'll do that. We'll do that. Stacy, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. It's been great. So it's awesome having Stacy join us and the great things that they're doing in Texas. But look, I, I think the bottom line is the system, the education system in America has to be changed. Because right now, only parents who have the resources, who have the money can make that choice. And parents who don't have that re, those resources, don't have the money, can't make that choice. That is a system that begs for change. It is one in which we will have, we, we continue to slide towards a system of haves and have-nots. And, have and as we've seen, the values and we talked with stacy about this a bit the values that we're seeing or the lack thereof sometimes in public schools you know the values that we all used to think we all held dear to to treat people fairly to be good to one another to treat people with respect to have to 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 have disagreements but not be disagreeable to believe that people can have differing views and we can still be their friends those values, it doesn't seem like they're being taught right now in many public schools. In fact, what's being taught is you will have our values, and if you don't have our values, you aren't welcome in our school, and you better change your values. The system is broken when a system is built around a system or an ideology. We need an education system in our K-12 system that values children and puts them, the children and the parents, in the driver's seat of that education. Because we run a real danger of poor kids continuing to be trapped in failing schools while affluent kids get to flee and go get a better education. And that is not a system that we want. That's not one that America deserves. America deserves better. We deserve a system where individual kids get to do the things that they want to do in life because they've had an education built around them that takes their talents and their greatest assets and helps build those. And so that's really important that we get to that point. Well, listen, hey, thanks for listening to the podcast today. Send me an email. Jeff at AmericanPotential.com would love to hear from you. The American Potential podcast, of course, is always working on stories. And we want to hear from you. We have, you can go to AmericanPotential.com. You can go to our share your story section. You can submit a story there if you would like. And if you know, it's, maybe it's your story. Maybe it's a story of a teacher that you know. It's somebody's story. Maybe it's a neighbor or a friend. We'd love to hear that story. And you can always follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on Facebook, on YouTube. And we just hope that you continue to stay with us and listen to these great stories that people from all over America are bringing to you. They're doing some great things on American Potential. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.